Please turn to Psalm 121 in your copy of God's Word this morning. Psalm 121. The 121st Psalm finds itself near the very beginning of a collection of Psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 120 through 134 form a collection of psalms known as the Song of Ascents, which finds itself as a subset of of Book 5, the last main section of the psalms, which is 107 to 150. So within that, we have a grouping, a collection, 120 to 134, which in, in themselves have a certain theme and trajectory to them. These were the songs that as we understand them, were sung by the pilgrim people of God as they made their journey three times a year to the festivals and the feasts in Zion, in in Jerusalem. And in some Jewish tradition, these 15 psalms are linked to even the 15 steps of the temple where the Levites would have stood and sung perhaps each of these, one for each step. But more likely is the fact that these were the, the chosen scriptures that were sung by God's people as they made their journey to Jerusalem, as they journeyed to Mount Zion. It was their playlist for the trip. And while we're not given the name of the the author of this particular psalm, we know his message because it's extremely clear. So this morning, I, I want us to see as we look at these eight verses before us, The security we have in verses 1 and 2 in our Creator. In verses 3 through 6, the security we have in our guardian. God, our sovereign guardian. And in verses 7 through 8, the security we hold for the future. Let's read this psalm in its entirety together. Follow along as I, I read. Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. You will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The Lord shall not, the sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Our God, we ask that you would instruct us this morning. Be pleased as we look into your scriptures. We don't look at them as one who stands above them, over them, more sophisticated than the writers of them, certainly not more than your spirit who is alive and active and is working even at this moment to apply the word that he made sure was preserved for us so that it could affect change in us for your glory. We ask that you would do this, accomplish what our own thinking and intellect cannot do, and that is lasting change that makes us better reflectors of the glory of God. Thank you for your salvation and the hope that we find in this text before us. In Christ we pray. Amen. 
as we begin our journey through this journey text before us, we see the security we find in our Creator in verses 1 and 2. So the psalmist begins, no doubt, in a perilous situation. The details are lost to us, but perhaps that is good. Perhaps that would cause us to become a little too enamored with the particulars and maybe to give ourselves an out that it doesn't apply to us. But one of the beauty marks of the Psalms is that they are so transcultural and, and timeless. They stand for us in their general principles so strongly that we can apply them in a, in a, a wide array of situations. But nonetheless, he says, the psalmist, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? So his eyes are up, perhaps scanning the mountain ridges and the peaks. But why? Why is he doing this? Why look to the hills? Well, what is his point and how does it relate to asking the sincere question that follows of where true security can be found? Well, perhaps right out of the gates here, we find our most challenging hurdle to interpreting this psalm. It is found in these first eight words. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Now, what does that mean? Many of the biblical scholars out there seem to say one thing, and a lot of others say another thing, and a lot of others combine them, kind of come up with their own jumbled ideas. So on the one hand... You can imagine the psalmist, the one major, well, large section, would see this looking to the hills and imagining the psalmist looking towards God's holy hill. How often do we read of Jerusalem as God's chosen holy hill, Mount Zion, the place where God dwells? Among the ancient mindset would have been mountains as the closest thing they could imagine to the nearness of God, the presence of God. So Mount Zion, Jerusalem, fits this description. Perhaps this is what he's, he's saying as he journeys onward, singing of God's power to control. And perhaps in this sense, looking to the hills is an act of confidence and resolve, almost as, as the mountain, as the metaphor, the hills as the metaphor for God himself. I look to the hills, a.k.a. God. On the other hand, you can imagine the psalmist trekking his way through the mountainous regions near Jerusalem, constantly scanning the hills, never quite sure if the terrain itself or a wild animal or a band of thieves might attack at any given moment, which would have been a very real situation for them. So in this sense, looking to the hills has a sense of anxiety and tenuousness about it certain measure of fear. And thus, we can expect the question, so where does my security come from? I look to the hills, where can I be safe? Two pretty good options, right? While both perspectives can be strongly supported, I tend to favor that second understanding that sees the upward gaze of the psalmist to the hills as one filled with longing and trepidation. These hills represent the fears of, of potential injury or even death. But as he looks through these hills, Jerusalem is before him. That is where he is heading. Ultimately, as Derek Kidner writes, either way, referring to either 
perspective, the psalmist knows something better. Verse 2 leaps beyond the hills to the universe and beyond the universe to its maker. So we don't need to stumble here and thinking that we can't move forward if we don't land on a certain solid option here. But if looking to the hills is akin to saying these mountains and whatever lies within them pose potential injury or death to me, then the question, where does my help come from, is very, very natural. And ultimately, it's the context of the rest of the psalm that that leads me in this direction. So what the psalmist does next is bold. It is courageous. He propels the rest of the psalm forward with resolute, stalwart, confident, unflinching, faith-filled confidence in the nature and the character of God. And this is what you and I desperately need to grab hold of this morning. His hope needs to be your hope and can be. See, the essence of this psalm boils down to this theological truth for fearful hearts. Theological truth stabilizing fearful hearts. And whether you you utter the question or not, where does my help come from? We certainly entertain questions every day. Where can security be found? Where can safety from danger and evil be found? Where can we access protection that is, that is real and effective? Where can we be assured that we will not stumble and falter? And how and where can true, lasting security be found for our souls? The answer, in the guardianship of God Almighty. That is where. So we'll return later to this question, but begin to let it percolate in your mind. Where do you turn for security? On what thing or person have you chosen to place your well-being and your sense of security? What things in your life make you feel at rest, at ease, at home, safe? And get ready to test them against Psalm 121. So verse 1 raises the question, and verse 2 answers the question. Help comes from Yahweh. Help comes from the Lord. This help is not the kind of help that you'd unexpectedly receive in some unsolicited manner. Say you're walking out this morning and and you drop a book. Someone reaches down for you, and they pick it up, and they give it to you. And you mutter quickly, oh, thanks for the help. You didn't need that help. This kind of help you desperately need. This help comes from the Lord, who is the maker of heaven and earth. Three times in the Psalms of Ascent as a whole, Psalm 120 to 134, the Lord is referred to as the maker of heavens and the earth. It is from this phrase that the Apostles' Creed took on its beginning sentence, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. The Old Testament is consistent in, in setting forward this understanding that, under, that sees God as creator of all, who creates, who maintains, who governs, and directs all things according to His will. 
He is the all-sovereign maker of heaven and earth. So there is no realm in the heavens or dominion on the earth that is fenced off from God's sovereign authority. It can't be done. There is no real estate that fits that description. Isaiah 66 says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And now to think that you know Him. You know Him. He's your God. The Maker of all. Creator, sovereign, not just of this planet, but of all that exists. And you have a relationship to Him. Do you fear Him? Do you rightly stand before Him, seeing who He is? We act differently when we know things about people. Certain power that they represent changes sometimes the dynamic with which we relate. Because he is the sovereign creator, he has all control. He does not just have the right, he has the might. He's not just a ruler that can't get anything done, though possesses some sort of title. He can and he does. Verses 1 and 2 are spoken in the first person. While the, the rest of the psalm is arranged in sort of a third person, you, although singular. So it's as if he's speaking to himself and then he's preaching to himself. He grounds the subjective question of as I scan these hills and I ask this question of where can my hope be found, then he goes on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell myself where hope can be found because I know And I'm going to drill it down deep into my soul. As if the psalmist is addressing these subjective fears with the certainty of objective truth. So where can security be found in your creator God? But verse 3 now continues. As we see in verses 3 through 6, the security in our guardian. God who is our guardian. He will not let your foot be moved. Verse 3 begins. Is God only in the business of worrying about where you spend eternity and nothing more than that? Kind of getting you through this life to either heaven or hell, all the while watching distantly like a general manager watches his sports team from the box suites way up in the shadows in his comfy chair, but has nothing to do with the actual play-by-play of what's happening. Is that how we think of the Lord? Not theologically think, but practically. Is that how you see the Lord? Distantly, maybe engaged at at big moments of your life, kind of the real big mile markers of life? Or is He intimately engaged in your life? He will not let your foot be moved, the psalmist speaks to himself. This foot, this one, on me. Not generically, but me. The psalmist feels the Lord's presence, stabilizing his feet at every turn in his dusty path. Safety from twisted ankles, lions, or robbers alike are all promised gifts from Yahweh. Do you view the Lord's presence as that involved in your everyday affairs? 
Do you honor him by acknowledging your need for that level of help? Let me tell you, the people in this world who live that way, if you're a Christian, you love to be around them, don't you? People that live with that awareness of the Lord's working actively, moment by moment in their lives, are a joy to be with. When I think about people I've had the experience to interact personally with my life, I did, it didn't take me long to think of the missionary that spoke here not too long ago to Cambodia. His name is J.D. Crowley. He's somewhat of a seasoned uh, veteran missionary in that region that has been a lifeline of support to our supported missionary, the farmers who are over there. And some years ago, I had the opportunity to stay in Cambodia for a summer, and it was an incredible experience. It was so helpful. And we made, uh, J.D. picked me up at his house, took me seven hours away to his small little village of Ratanakuri, and I got the privilege of sleeping on his floor that night. And around mosquito nets around me, and in the middle of the night, I felt a little squirm, felt a little something going across me, and I thought, that's not normal. And so I kind of woke up a couple times, couldn't quite figure out what it was. Finally, something felt like it took a little nibble, so I said, okay, I've got to figure out what's going on. Huge scorp- or huge uh, centipede. Huge centipede. Now, to me, centipedes were the little things that crawl across my kitchen from time to time, and I just scoop them up or squash them or whatever. That's not this, no. No, this is... I, and at the time, I didn't know. I figured he's fast, he's got a lot of legs, but I killed him, so that's good. And now, then I went to sleep. I woke up the next morning, and, and, and J.D. said, how'd you sleep? I said, not bad. It was all right. I had a little issue with a, a bug. He said, what was it? And I said, I had a lot of legs. He said, was it fast or slow? That's the difference between a millipede and a centipede, apparently. And I said, oh, it was fast. And he said, immediately his, his phrase, God spared you, Rich. I said, he did? <laughs> I didn't know. God spared you. But what was his thought? It was to attribute to God protection. That was his immediate thought. God protected you. Thank, he went on to tell me that small dogs have been killed by the amount of venom in, in these, these little creatures and that he's seen grown men just cry and cry before him after being bit. <laughs> so I certainly would have been wailing, for sure, waking everyone up. But don't we just love to be with people who know how to quickly take the perils of life and get to the Lord? Attribute to the Lord what he is already doing. Give him the credit. Do we live like that? Verses, the end of verse 3 to the beginning of verse 5, we read this. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. Three times in these three verses and six times in this entire psalm, we see this exact Hebrew word here, to keep watch over, to guard. Without a doubt, this repetition causes us not to miss it. A favorite tool in Hebrew writings. God keeps his own. He watches over us. But the manner in which he does it is incredible. 
How does he do it? God keeps us in such a way that is tireless and unceasing. He has no downtime or off hours where he's out of the office or off duty. He does not sleep, so he is always vigilant, defending us at every turn. Perhaps this this phrase might be even a subtle jab at the false god Baal, who was publicly mocked by the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 18, after Elijah suggested that Baal may perhaps be sleeping, among other things, and in need of his alarm clock, so to speak, since he was a no-show for the big battle of the gods ceremony. That's almost the, the tenor of his voice in the text. But unlike Baal, the one true God never, ever sleeps. He is always vigilant. You don't have to worry if one situation was under the authority and the governance of God, and then other situations were not. You can eliminate that fear. This pilgrim here, making his way to Jerusalem, may well acknowledge God's covenants and promises to Israel in general, but this verse moves from all of Israel to the individual Israelite identifying protection for nation and individual alike. For the Israelite journeying through these dangerous terrain on his way to worship the Lord in Jerusalem, as well as for the Christian, you and I journeying through towards the new Jerusalem to worship the Lord, we are kept safe by God. Verse 5 continues, The Lord is your shade. On your right hand, the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. So the sun itself could be a fearsome foe for the psalmist who may well know the danger of sunstroke and heat exhaustion. Shade makes for a pleasant relief, providing comfort and the opportunity to rejuvenate one's strength. So the text says that the Lord is shade for this weary traveler. He is that for them. In fact, the language used at the end of verse 5 carries the idea of a a servant waiting on a master, attending to his needs. Now, without abusing the, the idea of God's sovereignty and we are his servants, what a precious thought. It's as if the Lord wants us to know his personal, attentive, ministering provision for us. How personal is God to us? There is no professional distance that the Lord creates for his own. His bedside manner toward his beloved children is perfect. He is shade for us, spiritually refreshing, rejuvenating us, while protecting us from the dangers of even the elements, oppressive heat. Verse 6 continues, The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Many dangers come from the sun, no doubt, but many dangers also come at night when the cover of darkness provides excellent concealment for a whole host of nefarious activities. This is round-the-clock, 24-7 guardianship. This would sell a really good security system. Verses 1 and 2 teach us it is exclusively the Lord who is our Creator, 
who keeps us safe. Verses 3 through 6 teach us that it comes from the Lord, our guardianship. But the psalm concludes by looking forward to what the Lord will do to provide security for the future. So we see the security for the future in verses 7 and 8, where these verses highlight another triad, another triplet of God's promise to keep. So we read, The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So this psalm has already spoken to God's protection over physical dangers that may come against us. But what of those dangers that are spiritual in nature? What about God's protection against the evil that assails us? And of these evils, what about the ones that may come not even today, but years and years from now? What about those? Well, we find promise for those as well. This is comprehensive preservation to beat all. The Lord guards you, Christian, from all evil. Actively, currently, comprehensively, He is protecting you. And not just in the big moments of life when you tend to feel your need of Him more. The real catastrophes. Sometimes we respond best in those moments because we know, oh, these are the, this is a biggie. I've got to respond well. But as one writer notes, he said, to be kept from all evil does not imply a cushioned life, but a well-armed life. Psalm 23, verse 4, expects Christians, expects God's children to walk through valleys of the shadow of death. That to be sometimes a normal path For God's children to be kept from all evil does not in any way mean that we will be insulated from the potential of pain. What it means may be similar to Jesus' words in Luke 21. You will be hated, speaking to his followers, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. That sounds rough. That sounds really hard. I'm going to be hated? For the sake of following Christ, but not a hair of your head will perish. That may happen. It may well happen, but you're going to be safe. I'm holding you. I'm keeping you. I'm your guardian. What hope? Hatred by all for the sake of naming Jesus as Lord sounds rough, but knowing not a hair of our head will perish sounds pretty great. This is the dynamic at work in God's protection for his own. We may walk through dark valleys and experience sometimes trial after trial after trial. But we have hope in divine protection. Verse 7 ends with the phrase, He will keep your life. It could be rendered, He will keep your soul. The essential you and your heart of hearts before the Lord will be kept. So this is not only the version of you when you think that you have kept your ducks in a row, morally speaking, and have sort of deserved God's protection for a temporary amount of time. No. 
This is you with all your sin as a repenting sinner being kept from A to Z by the Lord. What mercy, what condescension, what a God. Verse 8 concludes with the blessing that the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now the total miles that one of these pilgrims would have uh, journeyed would have varied quite a bit, sometimes lasting days and days. But you can almost imagine the, the doorposts or the, the exit from the home of this, this pilgrim journeyer. And as he leaves, he's saying to himself that the Lord will keep my going out of the threshold of this house until I come back in it again. He's going to keep me. Everything that may happen out there, he's going to keep me until I come in again. The beautiful thing here is the assurance of safety. Come what may in future days, now and forevermore means for us, don't worry, Christian. God is guarding your life and your very soul from this second in this room right now until the day we see him face to face. For all eternity, he is able to guard you. We may well imagine Psalm 121 providing our Savior, Jesus Christ, with encouragement at various points in his earthly ministry. Toward the end of Luke chapter 2, we're told that Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. So it would have been Jesus' custom to sing this psalm and the rest of the Psalms of Ascent on their annual journey, which would sometimes happen three times a year, from Nazareth to Jerusalem. So this journey of approximately 100 miles for them, Nazareth to Jerusalem, would have taken a family probably of their size four to five days and would have been filled with all the exact same perils that are described by the psalmist in this, in this psalm before us. Thieves, wild animals, Scorching sun. So in a very literal sense, Jesus walked this very same path as the psalmist, reciting these very same words and clinging to the very same God for security and his protection. An amazing thought. Perhaps Jesus also meditated on God's keeping and guarding work over him as he spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, and who led him upward, Satan, who led him upward toward Jerusalem's temple, to its very pinnacle, but not for the purpose and the joy of worshiping God, which was the intent of these psalms of ascent, but the very opposite, to desecrate God's name with false worship. Don't worship God. Worship me, Satan says. Satan tempted Jesus right then and there to test God's guarding power. Just how good is God, Jesus, at guarding you? He says here, quoting from the psalm that we read earlier, Psalm 91, 
He says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. Satan continues, citing Psalm 91 again, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Yet another phrase we see here in Psalm 121. Jesus responded by quoting Isaiah and warning Satan not to put God to the test. God's written words, God's written words, like the pilgrim psalmist who preached objective truth to his own soul, this was the thing that sustained Jesus in the face of intense temptation. In his hour of temptation. But perhaps we see our Savior fulfilling Psalm 121 best as he himself climbs Calvary's mountain, journeying with indescribable pain to a place where he would feel the scorching sun and know the company of thieves, and where he would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Something that Psalm 121 says is not supposed to happen for God's children. God has forsaken His beloved. But God had kept and guarded and protected Jesus up until this very hour for all and all that had come before so that He would become the ultimate sacrificial lamb that would provide atonement for all. And God, but God did not falter on his promise. This wasn't some temporary abdication of what he had said. As Acts 2.24 states, God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So at his moment of greatest pain and abandonment, God was working salvation for millions of sinners while still following through on his word to provide security for his only beloved son. He didn't abandon him forever. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that he might become the righteousness of God, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Well, if you are here this morning and the Christian faith is something you consider yourself to look from the outside upon, you have questions you're unsure of. If you have never heard perhaps the truths of why Jesus came to live and to die for sinners like you and me, well, we'd love to talk with you and to explain even in more detail the incredible truths outlined in, in the Bible, the Bible's story of how God preserves his own through the sacrificial death of his own son. That's a standing invitation, by the way. I hope we know that. We'd love nothing more to talk of God's work from the Scriptures, to invite you to that. Regardless of where you might land on the spectrum of belief, you may just be surprised with how satisfying to your heart the Bible's explanations of a great many things are to you. So if you're not a Christian, I'd ask you, though, do do you see God as good towards His children? Do you not long to be named among them 
among those who will be guarded by his, the very being who made the heavens and the earth? Do you long for security both in this life and when you walk through the valleys of deep discouragement and disappointment, but also forevermore, for all eternity? This can be yours, but it all depends on what you do with God's Son, who was slain for your sins some 2,000 years ago and was risen by the power of God and is reigning with all authority and who will return for his own. So true security both now and forevermore can only be found in him. Believers here this morning, this psalm was written and preserved for us. So that God might get something done in us. This psalm was written to get something done. The Bible was written to get something done. The Lord does not just want to leave us with some nice general fortune cookie type ideas to leave with and think about and just, you know, just if you want to. The Lord is building a kingdom for his own glory and he intends that we would respond in joyful obedience at who he is. He intends change in all of us. So what is that takeaway? What is the point that we shouldn't just take away, but change in our thinking or our living? What does God intend to get done? The psalm is about living your theology. Live what you know. The psalmist scanned the hills, which were to him a source of great concern. But he did not fixate on those fears writing us a psalm of the 73 different ways that you can be killed by a lion as you travel to Jerusalem. No, sometimes we can do that, can't we? We can think of the scores of ways in which life can go wrong, and we give our attention right there. No, he saw them as real foes, as real challenges. But he did something else. He chose to rehearse and repeat objective truth what he did how many times is there repetition in this psalm and it's intended for us to get it and yet these truths that we find here are not particularly unique or unheard of i mean is it news to any of us that god is creator is it news to any of us that god does not sleep or that he is omnipresent or that he provides protection for his children if you've spent any amount of time in church, you surely have heard these things. But have you savored them? Can you back them up experientially with your own stories? Or have all the God spared you rich type of moments just passed right by? And you've not been rehearsing and repeating and reminding yourself of all the ways in which God is caring for you, keeping you, watching over you, guarding you from evil. Give to him what is his. Praise for your well-being, for the safety of your soul. So the change God desires in each of us is that we would live like men and women fully convinced that God is and will be our sovereign guardian no matter what. 
This is how you prepare yourself for suffering. Do you know this? This is how you get yourself ready for the trials of life. When all men say all kinds of evil against you, that Jesus promised will come, how do you ready and steady your soul for those moments? You practice, like the psalmist, surveying the landscape of your fears, encountering them with truth. So let's ask ourselves, what do you see when you examine the fears in your heart? What do you see? Be honest. What causes anxiety to rise within us? Are you constantly worrying, fretting over money and your health, body image, your intellect, your career, your house, your kids, your reputation, your circle of friends, your retirement, on and on and on the list can go. Instead of being good stewards in those areas, we we worry because we're finding security that ought to be in the Lord in these things. But after you are honest about those things, proceed to open the floodgates of truth and anchor your security and your very identity in God's loving protection provided by truth. I started to do this for myself. Okay, what does God's word tell me about money? Well, I'm going to have everything I'll ever need. He's going to take care of me. If I faithfully steward what he's given and seek first the kingdom of God, I have nothing to fear. He is good. How do I counter some of you great health issues? What's the truth about our health? Every day that we breathe is a gift from God. It's a gift from his good hand and ought to be used for his glory. How can that happen? We give ourselves to the truth over and over and over. And when we face temptation from the evil one, fall upon the strong arms of our God who will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. As verse 7 says, while the trials and the temptations of this life may seem incredibly formidable, God's promises will always keep us and guard us until we see him face to face. The Puritan theologian Matthew Henry, reflecting on Psalm 121, said this, Wherever we are, at home or abroad, we are exposed to danger more than we are even aware. And this psalm directs us and encourages us to rest ourselves and our confidence in God, and by faith to put ourselves under his protection and to commit ourselves to his care. So may the Lord help us to look to him, to rest in him, to find our sufficiency in his care, ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ, for us as his children. Would you stand with me as we pray together? Our God, we ask that you would keep us. We're praying for something we know you've already told us is true, but We pray in such a way that it would strengthen us. Father, make us skillful at being able to instruct our own hearts in how to parry the many, many, many fears that come our way on a daily basis. We can live there, Lord. It can sour our entire outlooks, 
relationships if we give ourselves to the many, many ways in which life can go wrong. But you have called us to find our security in you. And as we scan the hills, so to speak, of our own fears, help us to deliberately, with truth, fight to anchor our souls in you. Thank you that you keep us. Thank you that you are presently and will forever guard your children. We have nothing to fear. And how that propels us to boldly take the gospel to our neighbors and to the ends of the earth. To boldly seek first the kingdom of God. And to be about your kingdom and about your gospel. Affect the change that would most glorify you in each of our hearts today. Help us not to leave here without the obedient laying down of our wills to be molded into Christ's own image as a result of the word that has hit us this morning. We thank you for these precious truths and ask now that we would respond in song, clinging to our Savior Jesus Christ, who even when we fear our faith will fail, you promise you will hold us and keep us to the end. In Christ we pray, amen.